CGRU comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits to strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place on the web at maincf.org. Support for WERU also comes from Woodlawn Museum, Gardens, and Park, 180 acres of an estate located near downtown Ellsworth. 667-8671 or woodlawnmuseum.com. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, if you think a museum is all about artifacts and dioramas, um, I hope this show will convince you to think again. At the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, the mission to, is to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations in every visit. That means new and evolving exhibits, relevant research, active engagement with visitors, and energized outreach to the wider community. And I'm so happy that um, folks from the Abbey can be with us this morning. Cinnamon Caitlin Legutko is the president of the Abbey Museum, and George Neptune is the museum educator. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Um, perhaps each of you could give us a little um, kind of biographical sketch. How did you come to um, museum work, uh, starting with you, Cinnamon? What was your background and what led you to the Abbey? Well, I am a kid that was raised in museums when we traveled on vacation. We always found ourselves in museums. Um, so that was my track early on, and it was what I planned throughout my um, college education. And um, this, the Abbey Museum is my third museum leadership position. So um, it was a natural fit, but I will say that I'm a Midwesterner. So to find myself in New England, much less in uh, off, on an island off the coast of Maine, is pretty exciting. Um, but I came to this organization because my background was in anthropology and history and art history. Um, and I was very passionate about um, Native tribes and their issues and concerns and how they're represented in museums. So it was a natural fit. And I'd heard about the Abbey for years and years and years. Um, so it had a wonderful reputation that I knew about, and it was a perfect fit. Mm. And I think you've kind of um, distinguished the Abbey Museum as one of the small institutions versus um, you know something that's large, um, that that's, uh, has a, a national reputation in that kind of large sense, but small museums have a place. They do. Um, I would call myself a small museum expert. 
it. Mm-hmm. Um, small museums in the um, terminology, it is an actual term in the museum field, usually have budgets of about 250000 or less. So those are tiny guys. The Abbey is more of a medium-sized museum, but it seems small based on um, being in New England and all these wonderful institutions. Our budget's about a million dollars. Mm. It hovers between seven fifty and a million. So we have a lot of work to do, and it takes a, a, a little bit of money to make those buildings happen that we operate in. Um, but technically speaking, we're a little bit bigger than small, but we're located in a small place, so mm. it makes for unique conversations and community building. Mm. George, tell us a little bit about your own background and how you came to the work as museum educator. Um, my name is George Neptune. I'm a Passamaquoddy from Indian Township, and I'm also a basket maker. Um, I have been making baskets with my grandmother, Molly Neptune Parker, since I was four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the age of 20 years old, I was actually named um, a master basket maker, mm-hmm. given that title through the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance. So um, I now have two apprentices, um, and I have known... Uh, about the Abbey Museum for as long as I can remember. Um, They were always a museum that featured my grandmother's work. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was 12 years old, uh, the Abbey Museum bought uh, their first basket from me for the collections. Uh, And even before that, I I was coming um, with my grandmother for demonstrations and to help with workshops. And I continued um, throughout my teenage and college years um, serving as a demonstrator and both um, as a workshop leader with my grandmother. Uh, so I got uh, my Bachelor of Arts in Theater at Dartmouth College in 2010, and then I moved home to the reservation. Um, and one of the ways that um, I kept myself occupied um, was through focusing on my basket making um, and focusing even more on that and really refining my own personal style. Um, and in the course of that, I was asked to participate in an exhibit at the Abbey. Um, I was asked to participate in Twisted Path 2, uh, which was a contemporary Native art exhibit um, that we have continued. We actually mm-hmm. just took Twisted Path 3 down. Right. Um, so I was asked to participate in Twisted Path 2, and then I was also asked to uh, demonstrate in the Cultural Connections uh, in the Park series. Uh, so when I came to demonstrate, um, I was told by the uh, curative education at the time that there was a new position opening uh, for museum educator, um, and I was asked to apply for it. So I submitted an application, um, after my demonstration. And uh, by September, I'd heard back from the Abbey. Um, I'd had my interview and was offered the job, and we had plans for me to come down in October of 2012. Um, And I've been at the Abbey ever since, and now I'm uh, one of the full-time museum educators there, and I'm frequently demonstrating my baskets and also continuing baskets um, when I'm not at the Abbey. So that's kind of uh, where I started. I've had a long history with the Abbey Museum. And and baskets and Bar Harbor have a long history as well. Yes. The, the connection between people who are interested in buying baskets and people who are making baskets. So th- that continues, really. Yes, definitely. Um, when the tourist trade uh, or when the tourist industry really started to boom in Bar Harbor, um, and it was um, at what we would call um, one of its peaks that we would call the Rusticator period from mm-hmm. 1880 to about 1920, um, the... Um, you know, Europeans had long been in America and they had already established their settlements. So now settlements were starting to come farther and farther north of the coast. So one of these settlements was on Mount Desert Island. Um, and it became more and more of a tourist attraction. And 
as Europeans started to settle year-round on the island, Wabanaki people stopped um, living in their traditional right. villages. But they would continue to come to trade with Europeans. Sure. As tourists started to come to the island, uh, Wabanaki people would continue to come to the island, and they slightly adapted some of our uh, our traditional crafts and our um, traditional pieces of art to sell to tourists. Um, so the Indian encampments were a very big part of um, Bar Harbor, and it was then uh, for a big, a, a big portion of this time known as Eden. Um, so Bar Harbor uh, had these Indian encampments, um, and eventually as, uh, as the Indian encampments started getting pushed farther and farther and back into the town, and mm-hmm. eventually Indian encampments were banned altogether, uh, Wabanaki people uh, continued to travel to the island uh, and make roadside camps and mm. continue to sell baskets. Mm. And mm. so now that tradition is still reflected uh, through the uh, Native American Festival and Basket Makers right. Market, which right. is at um, at the College of the Atlantic and is a collaboration between uh, the Maine Native Basket Makers Alliance and the Abbey Museum. Right. Um, and that is something that I've been attending um, as long as I can remember. I sure. was there for the first one. Um, I, th- uh, I was about four years old and more focused on running around with my cousins than I was on uh, <laughs> making baskets. But, uh, you know, I've only missed one um, that I can remember yeah. um, since it started. And there must be um, elements of, of uh, that story, the, the story George is just relating, and the origins of the Abbey itself in terms of, of, of uh, Robert Abbey kind of establishing a, a place where he would know more about um, Wabanaki culture. Well, interesting you should say that. Um, Of course, our original location is in Acadia National Park, and um, we're named after Robert C. Abbey, who was a friend of George B. Doerr, and they had this idea for a trailside museum in the park system, which was fairly common in the early days, and we're one of the last remaining trailside museums in the national park system. Um, But at the time, Dr. Abbey did not see a connection between oh. archaeological materials that he collected. He bought them as souvenirs and stores, people, things that people have found. He didn't believe that there was a connection between um, those artifacts and Native people that he saw um, around and continue today, which, of course, is a huge error. Um, it's an artifact of the time, the 1920s. You have a great deal of disconnects um, that we, we improve through history. But, of course, it's very damaging to our understanding of the historical record. And that's a lot of um, how we try to clarify our conversations even today. There's legacies of that and how people don't understand um, Wabanaki history in the context of their own histories when they come. And so a lot of our dialogue revolves around making those relevant connections. Um, you know, for example, a, a simple example is I think in school a lot of us would have used the term prehistory when we're talking about times before contact era. But for Native people, it is history. Mm. There isn't a difference. Um, rather, we would use the, we do use the term pre-European mm-hmm. as a better distinction of timelines. Um, so you can see those legacies continue today, and Dr. Abby was certainly part of that. It doesn't mean um, that we don't um, think about the things that he collected. We still have those beautiful, wonderful objects in our collection. Our original location still operates very similar to how he had it um, and envisioned it. He fortunately, unfortunately died a couple, um, almost a year, I guess, before it opened. So he never oh. saw it, but the vision continues uh-huh. um, with great improvement. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the um, joys and struggles of operating in two locations, the Trailside Museum and your new, relatively new um, uh, location in the downtown Bar Harbor. Yes, it's a very, um, it's almost like operating two different museums. Um, the Acadia experience is something you happen upon. It's this wonderful little gym in the forest. You might be taking 
a hike, you might be visiting the Nature Center at Sertamont, and then up the hill you come to this sweet little architectural model or gem of a place. Um, that was the way, the way we operated from 1928 till 2001. Mm. As you can imagine, things got a little um, tight in that building. It's a small building. And the dream began in the late 90s to bring the Abbey to downtown. And um, the building was acquired in the late 90s. It used and to be the old YMCA. That's right. Um, and then in 2001, they opened with this modern facility that's just gorgeous. Mm. It's full of reflective, quiet space as well as um, challenging um, learning spaces, um, changeable spaces. There's always something different going on. Um, but as you can imagine, it's it's a different way to market the experience. And we still work um, through how we interpret the information at each location because I, I love Sertamont the way it is because it's a museum of a museum in a way. Hmm. But we need to do that better so people understand that there was a way that people thought about history and that there's a better way and the more appropriate way now and still show those examples. So we're still working through that. You might see some exciting changes in the near future. And then, of course, in our downtown, we have changing exhibits year-round um, with our next brand new one opening on February 5th called Coming Home. Mm. So this notion of, of bridging cultures, that's how I've tried to frame some of our conversation this morning, um, sounds like um, the, the the awareness wasn't there in the beginning to bridge cultures, mm. and it's evolved. Um, talk a little bit about both of you. Talk a little bit about that bridging of cultures and how that is coming into its own now. Well, fortunately for us, we have a lot of great um, data that tells us this works. Mm-hmm. You know, you always know it works when you meet somebody and you learn from different perspectives and cultures. But we know when visitors are at the Abbey and they have a a moment to engage with an artist, a Native artist, or have a conversation or to participate in a demonstration or a workshop or to watch a performance, the learning goes deep. They really engage. And we see it over and over again. And that's really the model we've We've built the modern Abbey Museum on, and that Native voice is primary voice. You may um, experience that by meeting a Native person and building a relationship, or you might experience it through text on the wall where Native people are telling their own story in an exhibit from their perspective, or you might just um, experience it by some educational opportunity that you stumble upon. It's really critical for us to make sure that Native voice is the primary vehicle by which you understand this content and content instead of a museum voice which Mm. is the older model Mm -hmm. um so in every shape and sound that you find there's a collaborative model that we're working on and i know george can speak more specifically about that Mm. um definitely one of the things that um i think is most valuable about the work that we do is uh you know, in my own experience as a Native person, I certainly have had many experiences of, of racism, and they may or may mm. not have been, um, you know, overt experiences. Um, but I do believe um, that a lot of it is just because that awareness um, oftentimes isn't there or that awareness is just starting. A lot of time these um, these instances of, um, of discrimination or of bigotry would um, – I've realized that they definitely – arise out of misunderstanding, mm-hmm. either whether it's mm-hmm. from misinformation or just from a lack of information. And that's why I take um, my work so seriously. I think mm-hmm. it's very important for me to go out and, um, you know, be a Wabanaki person educating others about Wabanaki culture, um, you know, and I can't, you know, and I make sure to make sure that I say that, well, I don't know how it is for Mi'kmaq or for Maliseet or for Penobscot people, but I can speak to mm-hmm. Passamaquoddy culture. Um, but I think that the idea that even in our educational programs, 
um, people are getting um, Wabanaki perspective as primary perspective um, is something that um, can be invaluable and mm-hmm. can often um, help work to reverse some of that, mm-hmm. that discrimination mm-hmm. and that misunderstanding. So um, maybe you could describe um, a program that you've done recently out, out in, the, in schools or in the public that, that um, kind of illustrates how that happens. Uh, well, one uh, one program that I do, probably the most popular program that I do, is the storytelling program, mm-hmm. um, and it is often also requested with Wabanaki songs and dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the storytelling program um, is a an hour long program, um, and it is just me telling um, some of our traditional mm-hmm. stories to the mm-hmm. kids. Um, and I, I use a lot of Passamaquoddy words, um, and I try to make sure that I don't use the English words because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, the stories are about animals being created. Mm-hmm. And I don't tell them the English name so that the kids have to figure mm-hmm. it out throughout the mm-hmm. course of the story. Um, so that is um, one way I, I can help to impart um, a, a piece of our oral history to, mm-hmm. to people who request a storytelling program. Um, and they also uh, will learn traditional songs and dances in the Wabanaki Songs and Dance program. Um, but one way... Um, I guess to speak a little bit more towards um, kind of correcting some of that misinformation. Um, another popular program for older students um, is the stereotypes program. Mm. Um, I lead a stereotypes program about um, both cultural appropriation and different um, stereotypes um, about Native people and how they are perpetuated by the media, perpetuated by fashion companies, um, and where we think it comes from, why we think it's harmful, and what we think we can do. Um, to, to work against it. Um, and that is always um, very well received um, by kids of all ages, especially kids in high school. Say a little bit more about cultural appropriation, that, the definition and how it shows up in our, our day-to-day lives. So cultural appropriation um, is, I don't know if I can I can put the, the exact <laughs> definition. No, no, there, that's all um, right. But cultural appropriation is instances in which um, aspects of one culture are taken and interpreted in such a way um, and used in another aspect within another culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, it would be um, a very classic example is um, taking uh, Native American headdresses, plain styles headdresses, and using them in fashion shows right. um, that aren't Native fashion designers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is taking something that is both a cultural and spiritual object and using it in a context in which it clearly isn't being understood or given the proper respect that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people will often say that, uh, oh, we're, we're trying to honor this culture, but there's a very fine line between mm-hmm. appropriation and mm-hmm. appreciation. Right. Um, if you are understanding the culture and you want, and you are truly appreciating the culture, you would know not to put that headdress on a female um, on a female modern because because that's considered disrespectful mm-hmm. um, within that tribe uh, or within uh, those cultures that do use those right. plains headdress right. um, and you would know that those eagle feathers are only given um, as um, within acts of honor so you have to earn each one of those it's mm-hmm. not something that is meant to be used as a piece of fashion um, and people um, often really have a hard time just understanding that very simple concept Mm -hmm. that they don't um, understand that simply by ignoring those cultural norms, you are you are disrespecting Mm -hmm. those cultures that do Mm -hmm. feature those headdresses. Mm -hmm. Um, Other examples would include um, tribal prints on different um, on different clothes. Um, But even that is something that I have bought about jackets with tribal prints on it. Um, So it's definitely um, a tricky um, a tricky sea to navigate when you're looking at appropriation versus, versus appreciation. 
But unless you talk about it in real real words, no one's going to have that kind of appreciation for, oh, there's a fine line here. We better be careful. We ought to be thoughtful about this. Exactly. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. what I usually say in these instances is just say um, to research the products that you're buying. Make mm. sure you know where they're coming from. If you can, find T-shirts or, you know, T-shirts with tribal print that are made mm-hmm. by um, that are made by native peoples. Um, right. They exist. There are. Um, different fashion outlets where you can buy native-made fashion. I have my own collection of native uh, fashion designer T-shirts, and I wear a different one every day, and I love all of them. Mm. Um, So there are ways that you can appreciate and wear aspects of native culture in which that it supports the culture rather than supports the appropriation of the culture. Tell us a little bit about, uh, Cinnamon, if you would, about the origins of Twisted Path and and how um, that exhibit um, again, is an attempt to bridge cultures and, and help interpret. Mm-hmm. Um, Twisted Path was the brainchild, the idea, the imagination of a wonderful Abenaki artist named Rick Hunt. Um, and I would say its origins go as deep as 2008-ish. Around that time, he had this wonderful idea. He approached um, members of the Abbey staff and said, you know, I have this this thing that's gnawing at, m- gnawing at me is that I'm an artist and I do pen and he does these incredible pen and ink drawings and he's a mural artist, very incredible. contemporary, gorgeous, beautiful things. And because he's native, he's often um, put into a box that if you're native, what you're doing should be traditional. It shouldn't be pushing the boundaries of, of the non-native's expectation of him. Um, and so as a result, to move his art forward, he has to walk in two worlds. He has to recognize those two worlds, and it becomes this twisted path metaphor, which is also um, a bead pattern, right, George? Yes, it's, oh. um, it's a beadworking pattern that is um, used to decorate the edges of garments, and it uh-huh. kind of makes a staggered pattern uh-huh. on the edge of the garment. Uh-huh. And so yes. that's where the exhibit gets its name, Twisted yeah. Path. So, 2009 was the first introduction of this, and there were um, people from all over the U.S. invited, all over North America, rather, um, and there were also a few Wabanaki artists who participated, and they were really just presented with this concept in the first one about um, walking in two worlds, and they were to respond through art as a, I call it a meditation on the idea. And then the audience member, the visitor, is supposed to consider the artwork that they bring mm. that they produce and come up with their own answers and then there's programming that we do alongside it to kind of dig deeper but it's really um more of an evocative museum experience when we do the contemporary art show um it was so successful that we had to continue this conversation mm-hmm. and i see it as a conversation so twisted path two was the one that george mentioned earlier and that looked at how um seemingly traditional art forms are taking on contemporary um, elements. Mm-hmm. And so it was a little bit smaller of a show, but it was specifically Wabanaki artists at that yeah. time. And then this year, um, we posed the theme around environmental concerns. Questions of balance was the subtitle. Mm. And the artists, we went across North America again, as well as Wabanaki artists involved, meditating on the idea of sacred spaces, the preservation of and the destruction of those places and what it means um, for Native people. And um, the response was extraordinary. We had wonderful critical reviews and (laughs) good visitation. We're a little sad to see it down now, but excited Mm -hmm. about the future. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a a series that will continue Mm -hmm. maybe every three, four years. We're not really married to a year interval yet, Um, but there's more to come. Right. 
right. And I realize we've been uh, talking for a while. I've, I'm delighted to have uh, George Neptune, a museum educator, and Cinnamon Caitlin Lagutko, who is the president of the Abbey Museum, um, here on Talk of the Towns. We're talking about bridging cultures here on Talk of the Towns. Um, we, I realize we've been talking um, and, and mentioned your mission about ex- kind of expanding awareness of Wabanaki culture. Maybe you should give us a definition of Wabanaki. Maybe that's uh, we ought to start with that. <laughs> uh, if you can, well, I mean, just from from the past, uh, from my, my perspective, right, and looking right. um, from a, a, a linguist or a linguistic perspective, um, Wabanaki comes from an older word that is Chquabanaki, and Chquaban means uh, literally the coming of the light, mm-hmm. and it is specifically referring to the rising sun, mm-hmm. and then Akig is um, denoting a place. So Chikwabanakik is the land of the dawn. Chikwabanakik, hmm. the, 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 um, the word, um, so it would either be Chikwabanaki for a single person or Chikwabanakik for a group, for the group of people are the people at the land of the sunrise. Hmm. So Wabanaki um, is an all-encompassing term for all of the tribes uh, within um, what is now known as Maine, but um, historically was the greater Maine, um, Maine and Maritimes area. Mm-hmm. There are other cultural groups outside of Maine that identify um, as Wabanaki. Uh, so the four federally recognized groups in Maine um, that are part of the Wabanaki Confederacy are the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, uh, Micmac, and Maliseet tribes. Uh, historically, the uh, Abenaki were also part of the Wabanaki Confederacy, um, but they no longer have communities in Maine. They have communities in Vermont and Quebec. Mm-hmm. And how did how did the Abbey kind of um, start to say that's the that's the the group that we wanted to work with? That was the um, what was the origin of of that connection? Because that was the that those were the native peoples who were here. Yeah. But um, I think in the last few years. 10 or 15 years, that um, that circle has been more uh, precise a little bit. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think in the beginning, it was, it was a matter of geography. Mm-hmm. And this place, you know, it's such a specific place with Acadia National Park. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the experience. So, of course, you want to understand the peopling of this place. So it made sense um, for there to be a focus on the Wabanaki tribes. Um, you know, when was a decision made to not think, beyond Maine, I can't say, but I will say that our mission has strengthened and the support we receive has strengthened when we concern ourselves with the place we're in. Right. It makes the best sense. We have, I believe, in Maine, an extraordinary opportunity when we work with these topics and these um, these histories because Wabanaki people never left. Mm. They were never removed. Um, you live in other parts of the nation, and you have these terrible stories of Indian removal. You don't have that here. Doesn't say. Doesn't mean that there were weren't horrible things that happened right. here. Right. But for more than twelve thousand years, Native people have been in this land, and that is something to consider. Yes. Especially when you have more than two million people visiting Mount Desert Island, mm-hmm. and just over a million people in the state. The 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 uh, concept of all those people coming to this place where there have been wonderful, amazing families, um, units of thought, cultures connecting way before they ever got here and they never left. (laughs) Why would you talk about anything else than that? That is the coolest thing. (laughs) It really is. Um, And we have much to learn, and we're only getting started Mm. at the Mm. Abbey. Mm. Great. 
So tell us a little about some of the exhibits that are coming up. Um, and you're right now you're closed to the public. Um, you're taking a little breather after the holidays and, and, and so on. Um, but you open up in February. Yes. George, you want to talk about coming home? Uh, sure. Um, we're not taking a breather by any means. We're, we're, <laughs> not, we're, the we're, the, not the staff. In we're, terms of the public. In terms of the public, we're taking a breather. Right. We're um, very busy changing out our exhibits. Um, right now, our next exhibit coming in, our main exhibit is going to be is called Coming Home. Um, and we are featuring um, many pieces of Wabanaki material culture, whether it's beadwork, quill work, um, other pieces um, of wood carvings that are coming back. Um, we are... Um, borrowing pieces from other museums throughout the Northeast that have not been um, in the Wabanaki homelands for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And many of mm -hmm. these objects are objects that uh, Wabanaki people have not seen in person for generations. Mm -hmm. um, many of our elders um, have even talked about seeing these objects or not having seen them since they were they were children. Mm -hmm. um, and just remembering, uh, or some people only remember seeing pictures of them and not mm -hmm. seeing one in person. Um, so all of these objects are um, coming home to the Wabanaki mm -hmm. homeland. But mm -hmm. is what, what makes them particularly unique is that we at the Abbey did not choose the objects. Mm -hmm. We went out um, and did work within the Wabanaki communities and asked Wabanaki people from each community to choose pieces on behalf of their community to come home. So there's a selection of Penobscot objects. There's a selection of Passamaquoddy objects. There's a selection of Malseed and of Micmac objects. So every um, every community chose their own pieces and also uh, talk a little bit about why they chose for these pieces to come back. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really a unique um, opportunity to see all of these pieces. We're going to be working with artists um, to have demonstrations um, in which they're, uh, we want them to... Uh, be w replicating some of these pieces and replicating some of these old techniques um, and copying them. And the artists are very excited to be able to come in and see these um, these old beaded moccasins or mm. these old beaded bags um, or these old uh, quilled boxes that are coming back um, because a lot of these art forms um, aren't as widely practiced. Um, you know, the knowledge is there. But the tradition isn't practiced as much. People ha know how to do the beading techniques, but don't necessarily make peaked caps. Mm. Um, people know how to make moccasins, but not necessarily in that traditional style that we used to. Mm. Um, so not only um, our elders and community members are excited about this, but artists are very excited um, to be able to see some of these objects come back. Because art doesn't stand still. And what I hear you saying is that you're you're reaching back even as art is evolving in the future. And so you're holding both of those those possibilities yes. in place. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that's um that's something that's always been um both important to me just um as a native person as and as an artist. I'm mm -hmm. one of my best friends in college. Um I mean, I guess the terminology I would use, she uh, it would be she gave me this teaching. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. She gave me a teaching that said uh, the only way we're going to survive as Native people, as Indian people, is we is if we continue to find new ways to be Indian. Hmm. Because our, you know, a lot of our old traditions arose out of necessity, and those uh, those needs have changed. Mm -hmm. um, so if we are going to survive, we need to adapt. We need to um, look towards the future, and we need to keep our other cultures alive as uh, our other traditions alive as well but if we're going to keep them alive we need to be able to adapt and mm. need to be able to change mm. Mm. 
And I would just add about coming home, too. It's giving us an opportunity to, to kind of pull back the curtain and show people this process, this conversation that happens all year long over multiple months and years even, that, um, you know, museums historically have a very um, problematic relationship with Native groups. Um, objects ending up in other places, sometimes sold, sometimes not. Um, and then the representation of those objects often um, disconnected from the human experience and uh, marginalized people. It's a very complicated, troubled history. And we're going to introduce some of these concepts mm-hmm. as well. It's a great opportunity to do that um, as we think about what the Abbey needs to be in the future, get some feedback, get some ideas, start conversations, start dialogues around it. Um, and as well as we're going to show how these items travel. It's a it's an incredible process of how they arrive to us. Um, couriers are bringing them from these big museums. There's six museums we're borrowing from. Um, and many of them require a rigorous process that people just don't realize. So we're going to pull back some curtains. We're going to introduce ideas. But we're also going to um, put the spotlight on extraordinary accomplishments um, by Wabanaki people that just haven't been seen. Do you also tell the story of how they got from here to wherever they ended up? Mm-hmm. Great. Yes, when Great. we know it, we do. Yeah. And one other thing I'll say about this show that excites me um, is that the idea came from conversations with Wabanaki leaders mm. and um, elders saying, could you just bring these things? Mm. Could you do this? Could the Abbey do this? Well, yes, we Great. can. We're the place, and we have the ability to do it. Great. I'll remind listeners that they can be a part of our conversation about bridging cultures using the Abbey Museum as a wonderful example. Give us a call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 625 perhaps um, share your experience, your insights, or your questions with our guests, Cinnamon, Caitlin Legutko, and George Neptune of the Abbey Museum. I understand there's another exhibit coming up that you have a direct role in? Yes. Um, I have uh, curated my first full exhibit at the Abbey Museum, uh, and the title of the exhibit is Gigat Dasuil, um, and the English translation of that is It Heals. It Heals. Um, and this is... Uh, Telling the story of the epidemic of uh, substance abuse within the Passamaquoddy community, within my community. Mm. However, um, I was inspired by this exhibit um, through through multiple of ways. One in which um, people often do try to document the struggles of um, of people in um, in uh, lesser economic conditions, um, they, and it's something that happens a lot in artwork, um, and it's something that made me feel very uncomfortable. Um, and Native people are often represented in a very negative light. If we're not represented as people of the past, mm. we're represented in the present um, with very negative stereotypes yes. and very negative connotations to our culture and to our identity. So um, I decided uh, to create this exhibit that uh, told the story of this um, not the story, uh, not the stereotype, but this epidemic mm. of substance abuse within our community, but um, not focus on the epidemic itself. Focus on uh, how my community is working to heal that. How my community um, is um, making strides forward. How we are healing this. The work that we are doing mm. um, to help heal this epidemic. Uh, so the fe- the exhibit features five different women um, within the that uh, either are from or work within the Passamaquoddy community um, and tells uh, their personal stories and the work that they do. Um, so it really is um, an exhibit that I think really 
uh, brings a personal touch to it um, and really will help people connect. And what I really hope that people take um, from this exhibit is I hope that by um, hearing these stories of these uh, very powerful women within my community, um, they will, you know, walk away feeling empowered to tell their own story mm. or feeling empowered by these women's stories to seek their own healing mm. um, within our culture. Um, it was believed that stories did have the power to heal um, from the lessons that you could learn from them. So I'm hoping that uh, other people will come and see mm. Giga Dasuo, It Heals, and be healed as well. Mm. Um, and it sounds like in, in doing that, you're reclaiming the right to tell your own story. <laughs> yes. Um, rather than have that, oh, someone, a documentary filmmaker coming in and, and describing what they're seeing, you're saying where you are and, and what's happened. And there's healing. So can you tell the story of, of one particular woman or, or um, you know, to tell the story of that healing process that, that uh, someone inspired or led through telling stories? Well, um, I guess if I were going to talk about one person in the yeah, exhibit, it would, hard, it would yeah. have to be my mother, Elizabeth uh-huh. Neptune. Um, so um, my mother um, told me this story um, that she was told by elders when she helped create um, a program, um, a, a tribe, a tribal program that was called Gamikwit Dahazotipun. Um, and it means we collectively remember. Mm. Um, so when she was creating this program, it was kind of a wraparound approach um, for families that were um, suffering from the effects of substance abuse mm-hmm. um, and addiction. So they created this program, um, and the whole program was inspired by a story um, that she was told by elders um, in which that we, as Passamaquoddy people, we had a responsibility to wake up every morning before the sun rose, mm. and we would sing a song that helped lift the sun into the sky. Mm. But it was also our responsibility to hold up the sky for the rest of the world. We needed to live our lives in such a way that we were living in a good way and the sky was being held up. So it was believed that everybody in their community had to do the do our part because mm. the sky is heavy. Right. However, it was also our responsibility not to lift too high and to make the work harder for others, not to lift your portion of the sky any harder or any higher than everybody else. So tall people couldn't. <laughs> so tall people had to had to right. crouch a little bit. Right. So you were supposed to, uh, you know, make the work doable for everybody and uh-huh. not lift yourself up above others. Um, and so my mother in the exhibit very much talks about all the work that she does um, and how she um, has dedicated her life, uh, dedicating, dedicated her life to improving the lives of Passamaquoddy people. Mm. Um, Passamaquoddy people in my tribe, um, the average life expectancy in my community is 50 years old um, or 49 years old. Um, And my mother says that she wants to make sure um, that her grandchildren have the same opportunities and the same long, healthy, long, healthy, happy lives that other people have. Mm. Um, And so she was a big part of this exhibit. Mm. Um, and she was reluctant at first to be in it. But mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately for her, she got a major grant on behalf of the tribe. Um, <laughs> so then she had to be in the exhibit because right. it's another wraparound. Right. Well, uh, is that approach. part of not lifting yourself up too high? Is that part of I that think culture? That's part right. of it. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Cinnamon, I'd like to um, return to the topic of the Abbey as part of um, the local community. And the the notion that um, as you encourage people to learn about the Wabanaki culture, you're also building community 
within Bar Harbor, within Mount Desert Island, within the, within the geographic area that you, you, you exist. Talk about the ways in which you um, and other museum staff kind of reach out and engage with, with the local community. You're not expecting everybody to come to you. Exactly. Um, it goes along with my belief of the power of museums. Museums are meant to be places of engagement. They're supposed to be places where you learn um, as you see fit, you know, based on your learning style. There should be um, a world open to you. Mm. It should be a place where you start learning. All the answers aren't there, but it triggers something in you. Um, and to me, the best way to bring people into the big tent, if you will, the big tent of ideas, is to find yourself in the community as a community participant, as building community with them so they help you build. It's a, it's a, it's a give and take. It shouldn't be a, a pulling of people in. Um, also, we're situated in downtown Bar Harbor, in a historic building, in a historic landscape that's just gorgeous. Mm. And we need to be out there helping these other um, businesses, uh, other leaders, build this community we're part of. It's just my my philosophy of museum work. It always has been. Fortunately for me, it's where museums are at in the 21st century. Places of engagement is, is a, a term you hear a lot. So how do you do that with a topic as specific as ours? Um, you know, maybe a general museum that does all kinds of history and all kinds of this might have an easier road of it. In my opinion, the Abbey can do it and do it well because we're we are a place of thought. The more ideas, the better. Bring your ideas in and then match it up with what you see and learn here. And you just might take it in a little more deeper. Mm. You just might find something new. Um, so we get involved with things that feel a little apart sometimes. But to me, it's a perfect synergy. Um, we um, get involved with um, collaborations that are talking like the hub of Bar Harbor about um, how downtown Bar Harbor can be a place of economic growth as well as citizen action, as well as places of learning like the Abbey and, and being part of the nonprofit sector, as well as um, a program we partner on called PKMDI, which is based on um, the Pecha Kucha model. That's how I say it. People say it otherwise. Um, but it's this idea of, of rapid conversation um, presentations. All kinds of ideas happen. We co-host it. George is the MC. It's this amazing, exciting event where we're talking about all kinds of things. But we just might be at the Abbey when you do it. And that's okay. All those ideas are welcome. When you welcome them all, you have an opportunity to learn more. Um, that's why we get involved, but also it's how we, we attract support. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, people have to understand who you are. Awareness is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, so being out there, being visible, being part of the community takes you far. Mm. Uh, I'll list our phone numbers one more time, one 625 9378 or locally 4690500 our conversation um, about the Abbey Museum its place in bridging cultures uh, George Neptune and cinnamon Caitlin Legutko um, cinnamon the the uh, um, museum you mentioned a budget of close to a million um, that must take a, um, a very active board and a yes. development process um, we have a phone call we'll come back to that question of development um, go ahead with your question or comment perhaps you'd give us your first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, most certainly. Uh, good morning. My name is Diane. I live in Liberty, and I wanted to voice my appreciation for this program. I'm an ally of the community, the, the Penobscot, all the Wabanaki uh, peoples in Maine, and I have been on a mission to try and learn a lot more 
not only about the rights of the people, but the culture, and that is intrinsically tied together. If we understand and appreciate the culture, we will have more of a basis to support the rights as well. At least that's my feeling, and uh, I very much appreciate you presenting this program. Thank you, especially um, George I'm familiar with, and um, not so much the other woman, but I'm going to be making another visit to the Abbey Museum. Thank you. Thank you, Diane, for your phone call. I believe we have another phone call. Um, let's go, go ahead and take that, and then if there's comments from our guests, we can do that. Um, please give us your first name and the town you're calling from. Oh, no, we don't have a phone call. So, any comments about the notion of, we do have a phone call? No, we don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, this notion that, that there is a phone call? Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, if you'd go ahead with your question or comment, please give us your first name and the town you're calling from. Uh, yes, good morning. My name is Anne. I'm calling from Camden. And I really appreciate the conversation you're having because I, um, I'm interested. I'm an, I'm an art teacher in the Belfast area, and I am uh, in the middle of a thesis right now and looking at um, how to foster an awareness of of this concept of culture and heritage um, in the school system, you know, in, through through art, through the art, and I just think it's so important to um, have students to do what we can to raise students' awareness of the landscape around them, and uh, and I just see, um, or I, I guess I'm wondering um, how the uh, Abbey is doing that. I imagine that there are art programs. Uh, I think that it's important to do what we can to foster that awareness and, and give these kids tools to respond to um, their culture and awareness and, and, the, and the landscape. Uh, we get so entrenched in meeting common core standards and, and uh, you know, giving these assignments. And I think there's a disconnect between um, the uh, this awareness of, of of Maine, of, of where we live, and, and of the heritage that's here. So uh, I just appreciate the work that it sounds like the Abbey is doing. Great. Thanks so much for your call. Comment, George, does that make sense um, in terms of what Dan wants, wants to be doing? Um, it definitely makes sense, and that's um, that's a big part of uh, what drives me to do what I do as well. Mm. I think it's very important for kids to see that connection mm. um, and to see that outlet of um, – not only different kinds of art, but the cultures of which those art comes from, uh, those arts come from. So they really do have a deeper understanding. So mm. I definitely agree. Well, and I would also encourage Anne to reach out to us. We do loads of teacher training workshops. We have a pretty significant series coming up of um, teacher workshops. And we also are a ready and able resource for anyone in the classroom who's looking for ideas. Um, we have a wonderful content on our website, but we can go further. Um, so please always reach out to us. We love to hear from teachers. One perfect example of one of those educational programs um, is our basket comparisons program. Mm. Um, it is a hands-on learning experience program. Um, in which uh, kids not only learn about both ash and birch bark basketry, the materials that go into them, the process of gathering and preparing those materials, um, but then they have the opportunity to um, examine a basket hands-on. I bring a whole collection of baskets, um, all different kinds, both fancy and utility, um, from a wide array of um, uh, more traditional and more contemporary artists. Um, and then... Uh, 
the students in that program have to play exhibit curator and they have to um, use all of this knowledge that I've just given them and mm -hmm. all of the background knowledge of the culture um, to record as much information about a basket that they don't know anything about. Um, and then they kind of submit um, an answer sheet at the end um, re reporting all the things that they were able to tell um, based on the information that they learned just by looking at the basket right. and seeing so it up close. So teaching those good observation skills. Yes. That's great. I believe we have another call. If you'd like to give us your uh, first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if I'm the next one. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Okay, my name is Margaret. I'm in Orland, Maine. Um, and uh, I very much appreciate the program. I visited the Abbey Museum a couple of times and I found it very exciting. And I reach back and uh, think that I, I too, have Native American in me from the Midwest. Um, anyway, my great-grandmother my great was, uh, yeah, great-grandmother was half Native American back there in Indiana. Anyway... Um, I'm also a member of the Quaker community, and for years we have uh, supported the Passamaquoddy and, and trying to uh, develop and have published a history, help them publish a history of the Indian nations in Maine. <clears throat> um, but I was uh, struck by uh, Mr. Neptune. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> a comment about the difference between assimilation and appreciation. <clears throat> and I appreciate that concept because it helps me hold on to uh, an important distinction. And um, I've been donating to an uh, Indian school called, um, oh gosh, it's, 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 um, it's in uh, it's Red Cloud Indian School somewhere in the Midwest. And uh, I get their calendar, and, and it features the children dressed up in very... Um, wildly uh, colored glitzy costumes uh, and I'm you know I'm not sure whether that's very traditional I mean there's a lot of different um, varieties of patterns and feathers and this and that uh, and I and I feel a little troubled about that whether that's really following their tradition or whether that's just for you know white people's consumption and I'd like to have some clarification on that if I've said said enough that you could clarify something. Great, Margaret. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Great. Cinnamon, you, cinnamon. Well, I know the question was for George, too, but and I think we can both chime in on this, too, because it is it's a perfect example of the nuance we were talking about, that there's this fine line, and that fine line is oftentimes challenging within the tribal communities. It's generational. You know, the generations have different perspectives. Um, if you look back in history, let's say, let's go 1940s, 1950s, Native people might have um, looked when they were trying to market themselves um, more Plains-like because that's how non-Native people <laughs> expected them right, to look. So right. to make a sale, um, especially we saw this with an exhibit we did last year, Wabanaki Guides, where um, Native guides would go to those big outdoorsman shows to try to um, get clients. And after a while, they realized, if I don't dress like a Plains Indian, I'm not going to get their attention. So that's where you get that generational hang-up. <clears throat> but specifically, I think um, the mailing you're talking about, I know exactly <clears throat> Excuse me, what you're talking about because I've seen it. Um, it's a matter of a mailing house picking a design and... Um, not necessarily being a native-driven mailing process. Um, I've, I'm, don't quote me on this. I probably shouldn't say it on the air, but I think the Red Cloud School has a nonprofit that they work with that's not tribal. 
that's not to say you wouldn't find this with a tribal organization. It does happen, um, and it's just an artifact of that nuance. George, what would you add to that? Um, the only thing that I would add to that, um, I wish I could see the mailing right. in front of me right, right now. Um, but uh, there definitely is something um, that is something that even I keep an eye out for. But one of the things um, that I kind of touched upon earlier is that we are constantly finding new ways to adapt and evolve our culture. Um, I mean, it happened with beads when we got beads from glass beads from Europeans. It um, was introduced to our culture and it totally exploded as an art form. Um, so just because it's, um, you know, if you see different brighter colors or intricate patterns and brighter feathers, they might not necessarily be something that would have been here um, pre-European contact, but that doesn't necessarily make them any less native or any less traditional because Mm -hmm. if those people are choosing these new contemporary colors, these new contemporary fabrics as opposed to um, animal skins or more or other traditional textiles, um, that is um, a, a representation of that evolving culture. Mm. Um, we do take new materials and we do adapt them into our culture. Mm. Um, if we had plastic tarps pre-contact, we would have used them for our for our shelters. Um, it would have been something. If we had it, we would have used it. Right. Um, if we had bedazzlers, we would have used those. <laughs> um, but um, so just because something is, um, and I'm not saying that it is traditional, but just because something is bright colors, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an exploitation or But what a wonderful way to start a conversation is to, is to observe something and ask a question. Yeah. Great, great. So thanks for that call. We have one more call I think we'll go to and then we'll begin to wrap up. But please go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, <clears throat> my name is Melody, and um, I have a response for the art teacher that called from uh, the Belfast area, yes. the Camden area, and George. Um, that uh, I my background is in art education and integrating the arts into the curriculum, and the curriculum oftentimes is study of cultures. Um, with that, to follow up on your program, George, which sounds sounds fabulous and really would meet many of the standards that teachers are expected to uh, come up to. Um, I would suggest that the art teacher. Um, work with the children in creating baskets, not not native baskets, but thinking about what the baskets are used for, what the natives use them for, and then what in their life would they make, would they use a basket for, and then creating that basket for that purpose. I used to do this with African masks. The teachers would be studying Africa, and they'd want me to make African masks. And I would say, these kids are not African, but these kids can create masks for an event in their life that would need a mask to signify it. Mm. Oh, so so, so uh, good. It's taking it a step further, and it's it's not having the kids imitate the native art because they're not native. Mm. Melody, thanks so much for your call. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah, you've got both of us cheering in here quietly. <laughs> Excellent example of how to do it. Yes. Great. Well, I want to um, begin to to wrap up the hour. Um, I I know that one other thing that's happened in the last couple of years is um, a new new affiliation with Smithsonian. And Cinema, would you talk a little bit about that and what it brings to Abby's ability to do its mission? Yes, very exciting development in our recent history. We were approached by the Smithsonian Affiliates Program um, to apply and consider becoming an affiliate. And after a rigorous review and a lot of nail-biting, it came forward and we were asked to join this wonderful group of institutions across the U.S. 
who um, align themselves with the practices and the interests and the promises of the Smithsonian. So that means we're interested in clear access, um, knowledge sharing, as well as collaboration between the Smithsonian and us. Mm -hmm. Um, For us initially, it was a quick yes to do it because of the brand, I have to confess. You know, Smithsonian brand is a global brand, and now we have that attached to the Abbey in a marketplace that has a lot of big brands like the National Park Service. So we we kind of rose up in terms of visibility, but now we're taking it deeper and talking about um, programmatic collaborations. Um, we have this exciting exhibit that George is working on that's probably one of our first best visible examples. You want to talk about the Colorful Cosmos? Um, so one of the uh, programs that we're doing um, through the Smithsonian Affiliates Program is uh, it's called Youth Capture the Colorful Cosmos 2, and it's the second um second round of this kind of program through the affiliates. Uh, So Youth Capture the Colorful Cosmos um, is an astrophotography um, program in which uh, children who go through the program uh, are able to uh, learn how to uh, get images, request images from the NASA telescopes, and then they learn how to edit and process those images um, into their own colors and their own um, their own exposure times and all of that uh, to create beautiful, beautiful pictures of the stars, of mm. the galaxies. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that um, we are doing um, with this program is I'm working with uh, children within the Wabanaki communities. Um, we started it um, in the Passamaquoddy community at Indian Township. Um, that's the community that I'm from. Um, we started it there and we're going to expand it to the other communities um, to create an exhibit um, of these um these photographs taken by Wabanaki children, um, but um, I'm asking the children to take photographs um, based on our um, oral histories, based on our oral histories um, about the stars. So we're so kind connecting. of calling, yeah. So we're calling it uh, kind of Wabanaki. It's called Youth Capture the Colorful Cosmos, and then we're calling it uh, Stars of the Dawnland as kind of a subtitle. Um, right. So um, I start the program by telling the kids several of our stories about stars, whether it's the star people or the s- story of um, the the sisters who married stars or um, the spirit road or uh, the great bear in the sky, all of these different um, stories. So Great. So um, one last question. We could talk for another two hours, I think. I um, could go for days. It's great. It's great. Um, but um, maybe just um, a short sentence from each of you of your hopes for the future. What, what do you imagine um, this um, moving towards um, in terms of the, the Abbey mi- mission of helping people understand Wabanaki culture? Well, I I look for the Abbey to be a place where people um, gain new ideas, take those ideas and become better people, Mm -hmm. become engaged in their community and considerate of others, and specifically learn more and more and more about Maine history and culture. Great. George? I see the Abbey Museum as um, becoming kind of a catalyst for um, creative placemaking here in Maine and Mm -hmm. definitely creating... um, Bar Harbor um, as a cultural hub for Northeastern Native American cultural aspects. Yeah, that's great. We're thinking big here. That's great. Well, I've reluctantly come to the time when I want to remind listeners that you were um, listening to a program produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Uh, Radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Uh, Talk of the Towns is going to be um, going to one program per month um, starting this month and, and 
and the second, um, uh, uh, excuse me, the fourth Friday of each month is going to be Coastal Conversations with my colleague Natalie Springle. You'll hear more about that um, coming up. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again so much to our guests in the studio, Cinnamon Caitlin Legutko and George Neptune of the Abbey Museum. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU program.